Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your bountiful gifts towards us, your creation, and we return a portion of those gifts to you this morning, asking that you would use them um, for your work in this world in order that your kingdom would be revealed, in order that the good news of the gospel would be proclaimed to all the nations. And even as we long for the good news to go out to all the nations, Father, we confess and pray together as we approach your word this morning that we long to hear the gospel proclaimed to us this morning. And so we pray that you would come and work in our midst this morning, for it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. At this time, the children ages three uh, to first grade are dismissed to Children's Church. And so if your child fitting in that age range, if you make your way to the back of this uh, sanctuary, someone will take you to your class. Um, This month, we're doing a, a brief series aimed at thinking through what Grace Community Church is really all about. And, uh, you know, we're asking the questions of why are we here? What do we want to accomplish? Uh, what are the things that shape our priorities and define who we are and what we want to be? And so far, we've talked about um, having a gospel-centered ministry and then our need for worship that is transformational. And this week, we're talking about our need to practice and experience deep, authentic, sacrificial, open, accountable community with one another. Um, And I hope to show you that as we're talking about community, uh, we're talking about something that is vitally connected to our worship together. Uh, So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Um, We're going to look together at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. We're going to read through chapter 13 down to verse 6. Um, If you're using one of the Bibles in the pews, you can find the passage on page 1009. So Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. Therefore, Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Um, The practice of community. That's our topic this morning. And instead of easing you into it, I I really need you at the beginning uh, to think carefully with me uh, so that you can understand what a unique thing the author of Hebrews is doing in this passage, how he is so uniquely framing his comments 
about community. And I want us to start by thinking through a familiar passage to some of you uh, from Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. In that sermon, you may remember Jesus said, if you're coming to worship and you're bringing with you your gift to the altar, and right at that moment you're about to give your gift at the altar, you suddenly remember that your brother has something against you, Jesus said, stop immediately what you're doing. Don't go any further. Leave your gift there, right there. This is what Jesus said, first, first, go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift. There's a lot we could say about that, but Jesus is at least saying this, There is a vital connection between your worship and your relationships, a vital connection between acceptable worship and your practice of community. Now, let's come back to Hebrews now. Originally, Hebrews was a letter, and there were no chapter divisions. And the author was writing about acceptable worship at the end of chapter 12, and then he suddenly started writing about the practice of community in chapter 13. And the change is so sudden that it's caused some scholars to suggest that maybe chapter 13 was a later addition to the book of Hebrews. Uh, Maybe it was written, added by even another author altogether, or some of the suggestions. But the best scholars realize how uniquely this author is framing all his comments about community. See, the beginning of chapter 13 is actually the author's description and definition of what acceptable worship is. Here's one scholar, James Thompson, writes, the beginning of chapter 13 gives concreteness to the author's call for acceptable worship. Hebrews is saying what Jesus said. There is a vital connection between your worship and your relationships. And I'm going to try to put it this way. You can't show up on a Sunday morning and come to a service and be a spectator and assume your worship pleases God. That's what these verses are saying. Acceptable worship, these verses are saying, involves a real moving towards other people and involvement in their lives. It it involves a real deep connection with other people and being immersed in a community where you know others and they know you. You know, this is a huge adjustment for us to make in our thinking and practice, that you need to be in a community where, there, where self-denial and showing grace are absolutely required of you because of how closely you are connected to other people. We belong to a Western individualized culture of consumerism. And it's a culture that says, first and foremost, you need to first and foremost, you need to look out for number one. And what's most important is what you get for yourself. And the Bible is constantly pushing back on that to say what you need to make it through life is to be a part of a community that has deeply experienced God's grace. It says the way to experience the presence of God in your life 
is by participating and practicing community with other people. So I want us to talk about four things this morning. First, the depth of community. Second, the openness of community. Third, the ethic of community. And fourth, the power of community. And I'll try to go as quickly as I can. First, let's talk about the depth of community. The author of Hebrews wrote, if you look down and you see verse 1, he wrote, let brotherly love continue. Or, or maybe another translation, keep on loving one another as brothers. Not keep on loving each other as acquaintances, right, but as brothers. The Greek word that's used there is a familiar word to us, Philadelphia, right? One of our cities. It's why we call that city the city of brotherly love, because that's what the Greek means. And it's probably pretty obvious then why I'm calling this the depth of community, because the author is saying, take what you know about family And apply the depth of those relationships to your relationships with other believers. Not all, but most of us grew up with a sibling or siblings, and so we have a point of reference. And we can say this, that relationships with brothers and sisters can be many times uncomfortably close, right? They invade your privacy regularly. They are constantly intruding on your space. They are regularly opening doors without knocking. Um, These are the people in your life who have absolutely no illusions about you. They have seen you at your worst. They've seen you without makeup. They've seen how petty and how moody you really can be. Everyone out there in the world might think you are awesome and great, but it's your siblings that will keep you from running for public office. It's your siblings that have all the dirt on you. It's real transparency. In a family, you share everything. You do everything. You go everywhere together. You play together. You eat together. You study together. You argue together. You forgive, right? You share resources and space with one another. You make decisions together. Some of you may not even like your siblings. I, I get that. You, feel, you may feel like they don't have anything in common with me, and that's fine. But listen, you still feel a deep sense of obligation even to those siblings of yours. It, it, you think to yourself, I should get along with them. I wish we had a better relationship, and that's right. They're your blood, and the Bible says when you become a Christian— By trusting in the blood of Jesus, that does not make you acquaintances with other believers. They are your family. You share with them the blood of Jesus. In the second century, a writer named Lucian of Samosata, he was especially scornful of Christians, and he wrote a satire called The Passing of Peregrinus. You can look it up somewhere on Google, I guess, but let me read you a quote from that work. He wrote this, "'The Christians you know worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account.'" You see, these misguided creatures start with the general conviction that they are immortal for all time, which explains the contempt of death and voluntary self-devotion, which are so common among them. And he writes this, And then it was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they are all brothers from the moment they are converted 
and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws. All this they take quite on faith with the result that they despise all worldly goods alike, regarding them merely as common property. Even the enemies of Christianity 200 years after the death of Christ recognize the radical depth of community among Jesus' followers. They are brothers. They shared their lives and resources with one another. They let one another intrude and invade their privacy. They took on each other's burdens and met each other's needs. And we want to be the kind of community that is moving towards that. And at the very least, it starts with putting ourselves out there. It starts by learning people's names and sticking around to introduce yourself, to let others know you and to know others. It starts by paying attention to the needs of others, not just coming and looking for your needs to be served, but to see where you can serve. And I can promise you this, that if you practice this kind of community, this depth of community, it is going to feel uncomfortable. That's how you know you're doing it right. Deep community always feels like that. It's going to trigger our shame and our fear of being known. It's going to feel like your privacy is invaded. It will place physical and emotional and psychological and spiritual demands on you. It's going to force you to adjust your life in sacrificial ways that will feel very costly and even painful to you at times. And let me say this. If you aren't feeling that at some level, and if you aren't putting yourself out there to at least begin feeling some of those things, then you have to ask yourself, Am I practicing the kind of community that Jesus talks about? And is therefore the expression of my truest humanity and what it means to be redeemed in His blood? We've got to move on, but listen, the crucified sage that Lucian wrote about in that quote I read, that of course is Jesus. To what extent did He give up His rights for you? We bring our tithes or 10% and put it in the offering plate. But thank goodness Jesus did not tithe his blood for us. He gave up everything for us, his life. And he calls us to do the same for one another. Okay, second, let's talk about the openness of community. Something from the second century, now third century. Okay, third century, Christianity was spreading throughout the Roman Empire, and the Roman Emperor Julian sought to crush it. He wanted to tear down the influence of Christianity and restore Neoplatonic paganism in Rome. And this is what he wrote. These impious Galileans, which is his word for Christians, not only feed their own poor, but ours also. Welcoming them into their agape, they attract them. Whilst the pagan priests neglect the poor, the hated Christians devote themselves to charity, see their love feasts and their tables spread for the indignant. Such practice is common among them and causes contempt for our gods. He was saying Rome is losing its influence because there's something unique about Christianity that makes their community radically open to others, open to people not like them, open to the poor and the suffering and the destitute, open to people who don't even believe the same things that they believe. And listen, this is where we get a lump in our throats, because it's one thing to make yourself vulnerable to those who believe like you. 
But vulnerability to outsiders, that can be very dangerous. Really dangerous for the people this letter was written to because it is an intense time of persecution. You could be letting someone in, welcoming someone in, who would betray you to your very death. If you can read Greek, this call to openness of community, it is so clear. Because in verse 1, he says, practice Philadelphia, brotherly love. But in verse 2, he says, do not neglect to practice philoxenia, which is love of strangers. Same root word, so you can't miss it in the Greek. But xenia, what, what's that? Um, you must not have been paying attention to the news lately. Um, you may have heard or seen this word certainly in the news recently. Xenophobia, the fear of strangers, the fear of outsiders and foreigners and fear of other races and fear of people not like you. And fear always leads down the path of hatred and violence. Fear leads to events like happened in Charlottesville. But it's Christianity that comes in and creates a unique community that is characterized by openness, by hospitality, by welcome, by making room for strangers. You see it in verse 2. And and the author there is, he's illustrating this with a story from Abraham's life when Abraham and Sarah invited these strangers in and they turned out to be angels. And the stories in Genesis 18, I don't have time to go there all the way this morning, but here's what he's saying. You do not find angels by going and looking for angels. You only find them when you go out looking for strangers. It's only when you embrace the gospel call of radical, vulnerable, open community that you move to greater depths of understanding God's radical, vulnerable openness to you in Jesus. It is only when you reach out and seek to meet the needs of those who can never meet your needs that you find that all your needs are met in Jesus. And verse 3 tells us that our openness of community is to be extended to those in prison and those mistreated. It is to move out in radical identification with the poor, the destitute, the suffering, and the mistreated, as well as those who are not like us. And I think I get the Emperor Julian's question. Right? What's so uniquely different about Christianity that makes its community open like this? What is it that is so fundamentally different about Christianity that would lead people to move out towards the unlovable and the broken and the needy? What is so fundamentally different about Christianity that would cause people to embrace others who are not like them, people who don't even believe the same things? In the aftermath of 9-11, I remember hearing Dr. Timothy Keller, who's pastor in Manhattan, some of you know who, who that is share a valuable insight from his wife, Kathy. Um, See, in the aftermath of that horrific day, there was a lot of rhetoric flying around. And some of the rhetoric rhetoric that was going around was about how it's people with fundamentals who are the problem, right? Islamic fundamentalists, right? That's the problem, the fundamentals is what they were saying. But Kathy Keller wisely said this. She said, it's not true. Fundamentals aren't the problem. Everything depends on what your fundamental is. Because if your fundamental is a man dying on a cross, then that should lead you to openness. Our fundamental 
is one of God's radical, vulnerable openness to us. See, when when God took on flesh in the person of Jesus, He didn't just become touchable and huggable and kissable. He also became vulnerable and hateable and hurtable and beatable and killable, and He did that for you in your place to welcome you into His arms by His grace. And here's what this means for us. If you don't believe that this morning, you are welcome here. And not to be tolerated and not to be treated as a project, you're welcomed into this community to take your time to examine the claims of Jesus. This, it also means if you come here and you find yourself to be in the minority, whether that be racially or economically or culturally, you are welcome here. It means if you've blown it in life and you're on your third marriage and your last pack of cigarettes and your second bankruptcy, you're welcome here. You know, I could go on and on with that, but let me leave you with one very specific application for, for those of you who do believe. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking a lot about opportunities to volunteer and serve with Cordova Elementary School. I mentioned this before we started our worship this morning. We've adopted all the kindergarten classes there at that school to serve the students, the teachers, the administration. And that's a school that draws from a a very low-income section of of people in this area, where over two-thirds of the student population come from houses below the poverty line. And we go there to volunteer, and we go there to help these kids read, learn how to read, and we serve in other ways too. But we're not serving them because we want them to serve us. Maybe show up here on a Sunday. That's not our goal. We're not serving them so that we can feel good about ourselves, that at least we did something. We're serving them because they are there, and there is a need, and we long to practice, practice openness of community. There, there's a sign-up in the four-year area. If this is the plug. Uh, sign up. You'll get information about it. Um, but listen, let me say something very similar to what I said at the end of the last point. If you're processing through that and you're thinking, I don't know if, about this volunteering deal with Cordova Elementary, and you start thinking, that would be really hard for me to adjust my schedule to find an hour a week to do that. Um, or you're saying, that's going to be really complicated and a hassle for my schedule. Are you thinking that's going to be super inconvenient because of where I work? I can just tell you this, um, that's what openness of community actually feels like. It, It involves sacrifice. It puts demands on us. That's what it feels like, and Jesus calls us to it. Okay, third, quickly we'll talk about the ethic of community love of brothers, love of strangers, and then all of a sudden the author starts talking about what most of us consider to be very private matters, sexuality and money. And those two matters, they're just his examples. But I I want you to see the genius of his pulling these two things out is that he can kind of hit everybody with these. Uh, And you just think about how it plays out in our own political landscape. Uh, I know this is a bit of stereotype, but on one side of the political spectrum, um, we hear something like this. We have a lot to say to you about sexual ethics, but don't you dare talk to me about my money. And then on the other side of the political spectrum, we have people saying, we'll tell you what we're going to do with your money, um, but don't you dare talk to me about my sexuality. See, he is implicating everyone here, whether you're conservative, liberal, whatever. 
Everyone is involved here. And he wants to implicate everyone because he wants you to see that there is no such thing as a private sin in your life. No matter who you are or what your sin is, it always affects the community. Now, I can't treat this fully, but think about it briefly. The author of Hebrews writes that the marriage bed should be held in honor. And he's saying there should be radical commitment in our most fundamental relationship. What what is really happening when we engage in sexual relationships outside of marriage? And I don't care how you gloss it up. And I, I did college ministry for like almost a decade, and I've heard it glossed up and, and rationalized in a number of different ways. No matter how you do it, you are using each other. You're saying, I want physical intimacy with you, but I'm not willing to commit my whole self to you. And when we use others, and when we treat others as objects to be used instead of persons, it affects and undermines community as a whole. The building block of society and community is the family, period. When there's no commitment there, it's like setting off dynamite in the, in the basement of a skyscraper, and the whole thing comes tumbling down on itself and unravels. It affects everyone. What about greed and the love of money? Most of us live and work day in and day out in a world that's dominated by greed and the love of money. And what do we see in the professional world? That people are abused and people are stepped on and they're stabbed in the back in an effort to get ahead and to get more. And more and more people are using their money as a means to isolate from community rather than be immersed in it. See, money can, money can certainly be used to strengthen community, but the love of money destroys community every time. There's no such thing as a private sin. In two of the most prominent areas of life where we tend to want to say, no one has the right to talk to me about my money or my sexuality, this author is saying we are accountable to one another. There is a real ethic to our community. I was going to read Joshua chapter 7 for you, but I'm not going to do it for time's sake. Let me just explain what happens in Joshua chapter 7. The nation of Israel had just gone into a battle and they were crushed. And thousands of Israelites lay slain on the battlefield. And Joshua comes and he, and he prays to the Lord and he asks, Lord, why, why were we defeated? And this is what God said to Joshua. He said, Israel has sinned. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. And it's all in the plural. And so you ask yourself, how did they, all these people, do this? And then you read the story in Joshua chapter 7, and you realize there was one man, and his name was Achan. And he stole, and he lied, and he violated God's covenant. Thousands died in battle because of Achan. Achan's whole family and livestock were taken out and stoned and burned. And who was it that stoned Achan's family? All of Israel participated in it, is what the passage says. Now, here's what I'm betting. I'm betting if you were there and you were hurling your first stone at Achan and his family, you would be thinking to yourself, there's no such thing as a private sin. It always affects the community. That's what God was teaching them. So here's what you, you and I need to do. You need to give up your idea that you're looking at porn or you're holding on to your bitterness 
or you're telling little white lies, or your selfish spending of your money, or you're cutting corners at work doesn't hurt anyone but you. Because that's how we rationalize those things. There is no such thing as a private sin. And so this community doesn't just love each other and practice openness with strangers, but this community practices real accountability. And there's so many applications here, but let me leave you with one very important one. Because some of you I know, you feel trapped by certain sins in your life. And maybe some of the ones that we just mentioned. And you feel like you can't get free of it. What you need to get free of it is community. You need a friend. You need friends you can share your struggles with. Because sin loves hiding in the dark. That's where it does its best work in your life. And it loses its power in the light of community that both loves and hold accountable, community that can speak the truth and grace. Okay, finally, let's talk about the power of community because this is the big question. Where can we find the power to live like this? I mean, even as I was thinking about it this morning, I was like, this seems impossible to do. Um, I got to move towards other people in deep relationships, but I also got to be open to outsiders, which is very dangerous, makes me very vulnerable. But then at the same time, somehow I've got to practice this this real ethic and accountability. How, how do you do all of that? Um, verse 5 and 6 are quotes from the Old Testament. And you see that little word for in the middle of verse 5, which could also be translated because? Th- this is how it reads. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have for or because he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me? How can God's promise to never leave you or forsake you give you power to move towards others, towards outsiders, and towards accountability? How can this promise that we're talking about from the Old Testament free you from the fear of man so that you are free to know and be known by others and free to serve others like we've been talking about? To conquer your fear and to find power to live like this, something or someone of greater beauty has to capture your heart. That's it. Greater beauty, greater love, greater wonder has to come in to your life and displace all of your fears of being alone, of being forsaken, of missing out in life of living sacrificially and open. Just a warning that this illustration, it's a negative, um, but I'm using it, and I think you'll, you'll get the point why in the end. Uh, years ago, I heard a pastor tell a story of a man in his congregation who had an affair on his wife. And the affair had gone on for years and years and years. And when it all came to light, the pastor had this man in his office, and he asked him, How were you able to live this double life for such a long time? And the man told him this story. He said that his wife would go home and visit uh, her, her mom on the weekends. It was on the weekends that his mistress would come over and they would carry on with this affair. And he said the only way they could go through the affair was by his going through his entire house before his mistress came over. And he would go through his entire house, and he would turn every picture of his wife 
face down. Every picture of her on the wall turned around face backward. Every picture on the refrigerator held with a magnet turned around placed against the refrigerator. Every picture on coffee table, whatever it was. He said it would have been impossible for him to go through it otherwise. Because when he looked in those pictures, he saw his wife's face smiling and beaming in love over him. And he couldn't go through it with his wife beaming in love over him. It doesn't come out in the English in our passage here, but in that quotation from the Old Testament in verse 5, there is a triple negative in the Greek. So you could translate it like this. For he said, I will never, never, never leave you or forsake you. See, how can you find power to live like this? By being captured by this wonder and this beauty that broken and sinful as we are, our Father is beaming in love over us. Because Jesus made himself vulnerable and killable for us because he moved towards us. And he lived the pure life we could not live and died the death we should have died. We have this assurance that we now have the smile and the beaming love of God himself. And he will never, never, never leave us or forsake us, though we forsake him all the time. In the first two chapters, uh, uh, first two verses, excuse me, of chapter 12, this is the last thing. If you still have your Bible open, you can see this. The author says, Basically, let's lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let's run this race with perseverance. And you ask, how do you find the power to do that? And this is what the author says in verse 2 and 3. He says, you do it by looking at Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith. You see his smile upon you. You look at him who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You were the joy that was set before him, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, who flung the stars into space. You were the joy set before him. And that's the wonder, that's the beauty, that's the love that has to capture your heart for you and I to find the power to practice and live community like this. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that, um, we pray that you would not leave us unchanged by it, but that you would allow us to see how far short we fall of what you would have us to be as a community but that we would find grace in Jesus, that we would be reminded of his smile upon us so that we would find the freedom and the power to move closer to one another, be more open to the strangers, that we would hold one another accountable, all for the love of you who gave your own life for us. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.